Welcome to the One for the Money podcast. I'm your host, Johnny West. I'm a certified financial planner, and here I will teach you the tips, tricks, and strategies I use to help others retire early. This is the easy button when it comes to early retirement. Everything you want or need to know is right here. I'm so glad you join us on the show. Welcome to episode 43 of the One for the Money podcast. I am very grateful you've taken the time to listen. This episode is for young adults and for those even younger than that. It's the information I wish someone had shared with me at this stage of life. Would I have heeded the advice and would my life be any different than it is now? Well, I can't definitively say, but what is definite is that knowledge precedes wisdom. And with the knowledge provided in this episode, hopefully some listeners can make wiser decisions to create a better life because of it. In the tips, tricks, and strategies portion, I will share a few tips regarding budgeting. Well, thank you for listening. Now on with the show. When I was growing up and eventually became a quote-unquote adult, I didn't know much about money. I certainly didn't have a clue what compound interest was, let alone the difference between a stock and a bond. Even throughout my college years, I didn't have any real exposure to these things or economics because I was a biological sciences major. It wasn't until after I graduated college that I first became acquainted with the economy and the stock market. It was an accidental introduction based on a recommendation from a college guidance counselor to become more familiar with current events to improve my chances when interviewing for jobs or graduate studies. So I started reading the newspaper on a regular basis, and I would read the national and international news stories, but would skip over the business section to get to the sports section. The business section with all of its abbreviations, which I later learned were stock market ticker symbols, and the associated prices to the symbols all seemed a mystery. Well, one day there was an advertisement about a free investment seminar at the public library in a nearby city. There I heard the gentleman talk about a really successful investor I had never heard of previously. The investor the presenter was referring to was one Warren Buffett. Well, as a result of this gentleman's presentation, I became really interested in the stock market. And less than a year later, the entire world would also become interested in the stock market as this was the early stages of the dot-com or dot bomb era. Well, despite the steep rise followed by the steep declines during the dot com era, my interest in the markets remained high and launched my interest in all things investing and personal finance. But sadly, I didn't arrive at this knowledge until my mid to late 20s, and it was after I had made some significant financial mistakes. In my younger years, I was familiar with money because I had worked a number of odd jobs. My first gig was delivering newspapers as a 12-year-old boy. I even worked as a shepherd on a farm. I also pumped gas, changed oil, fixed tires at a local gas station. I also mowed lawns and drove a forklift at a dairy processing plant. And yet, despite working for money throughout these years, I never learned the principles of having my money go to work for me. Instead, during this time, my lack of knowledge about money led to mistakes. Of course, some of my money mistakes were ultimately the tuition I paid to learn. I just wish I hadn't paid so much, and I'm hoping that this will help others pay less themselves. 
After all, wisdom is learning from the mistakes of others. Now, if I could sit my 18 or even younger self down and have the money talk, this is what I would have shared with a young Johnny. I like to think it would have had an impact, just like it might for those young adults listening to this now. The first thing I would have told my younger self is why it is so incredibly important that a person understands money. Put plainly, when there is something that can have such a massive impact on one's life, for better or worse, it's absolutely imperative that you learn as much as possible about it. While money by itself cannot buy happiness, a lack of it can create both miserable and challenging conditions. Just for example, money will impact all of your relationships. After all, money is the leading cause of divorce. Now, that's something my younger self learned several years later when my own parents divorced because of it. Good, faithful, incredibly kind people that grew apart because they couldn't talk about their money differences. Another incredibly important reason why one needs to understand money is because a lack of understanding about money prevents a person from realizing their potential. As Amartya Sen, a Nobel Prize winning economist, said so well, poverty is not just a lack of money. It is not having the capability to realize one's full potential as a human being. Now, these two reasons, relationships and realizing one's potential, are more than sufficient reasons to understand money. The next thing I would have told my young self is to understand the principle of paying myself first. Priority should be given to the habits that will have the largest impact for good. And by paying oneself first, everything changes because now your money goes to work for you and not just you going to work for your money. And when your money goes to work for you, then and only then the most powerful force in the universe will work for your good. Well, sorry, romantics, that force isn't love, but rather compound interest. And for those that trifle with this notion, none other than Albert Einstein, who knew more than most about power, see E equals MC squared, said that compound interest is the most powerful force in the universe. Of course, my 18-year-old self would have asked, what exactly is compound interest? And my current self would have explained that compound interest is simply this. When you invest money and it increases, you combine that increase with your original investment so you can reinvest that so your future increases can be even greater. Let me explain that with an example. Let's say you invested $1,000 and it earns 10% after one year. Well, you earned $100 on that 1000 Well, when you combine or put another way, compound those earnings, that $100 with that original 1000 and I reinvest $1,100, it does amazing things. Now, it may not seem like a big deal, but I'll give my younger self some numbers to show it its effect. If I invested $1,000 just once at age 15 and it earns an average rate of return of 10% a year, by age 11, it will have grown to, as you guessed it, 1100 By age 25, it would have grown to over $2,593. By age 35, it would have grown to 6727 
By age 45, 17,449. By 55, 45,200. And by age 65, that original one-time investment of $1,000 at age 15 would have grown to just under $117,400. All from that single investment of $1,000 and reinvesting that $100 for the first year and the growth every year thereafter. Now, if I would have simply put the earnings in my mattress, originally $1,000 and taken that $100 and put it in my mattress, I would have had $6,000 at age 65 instead of $117,000. The next thing I would have told my young self is that delaying investing is costly. Every decade delayed, I would have half as much. If I would have waited to invest at 35 instead of age 25, I'd only have half as much at age 65. Put it this way, a person investing $1,000 a year from age 25 to age 35, they've invested $10,000 between age 25 and 35, would have more money at age 65 than a person investing $1,000 a year from age 35 to age 65 despite investing three times as much. So I'll go over that again. Person A invests $1,000 a year from age 25 to 35 and stops investing. So they've invested a total of $10,000 and that continues to grow until age 65. Contrast to another investor who doesn't invest anything from age 25 to 35, but instead invests $1,000 a year from age 35 to age 65. They've invested $1,000 for 30 years. They've invested three times as much as the original investor, and yet they'll have less money because their money hasn't grown or compounded as long. The next thing I would have told myself is to only borrow money when investing in appreciating assets Borrowing money to buy real estate is a positive example where you would borrow money to invest in appreciating assets. Now, if you borrowed money to buy a car, that's a negative example because that's a depreciating asset. I'll give you an example. If you bought a new car for $25,000 and were paying 6% on the loan for that car, your car is worth $22,000 on the day after its purchase. It's just the way it works cars immediately lose some of their value. In five years, the car will be paid off. The total payments for this car would have been $31,000, but your car's worth would be around $7,500. So the lesson here is don't invest in depreciating assets. Sadly, this was a lesson I learned the hard way. My twin brother and I borrowed money to purchase a used Jeep Wrangler. We fell in love with the vehicle at the auto dealership. We even paid extra for the drivetrain insurance. Of course, two days later, the clutch went out, which the dealership said wasn't included in part of the drivetrain. Well, we couldn't get our Jeep to go, but apparently the slave cylinder still wasn't part of the drivetrain. Sadly, that wasn't the only issue we had with the Jeep. It was constantly in the shop and we had hugely expensive mechanical problem after mechanical problem that the dealership said our drivetrain insurance didn't cover. We later learned that the Jeep was owned by a former professional hockey player that unhooked the odometer when he drove the thousands upon thousands of miles 
between the season and his summer break. While we owned the Jeep, we were surprised that the dealership was quick to repair our broken speedometer after refusing to repair everything else. But we later learned that they knew what was up because the speedometer is connected to the odometer and they knew the vehicle had way more miles than shown. Note to self, don't borrow money to buy a depreciating asset that costs you even more money. The next thing I would have told my young adult self is to avoid credit card debt at all costs, quite literally. I only read a few finance guys regularly, Ben Carlson, Brian Westbury, and David Bonson, who is the founding and managing partner of the Bonson Investment Group. He's a frequent guest on CNBC, Bloomberg, and Fox Business, and is a regular contributor to the National Review and Forbes. And this is what he stated in a letter recently. You should avoid credit card debt like it's the Black Plague, Bubonic Plague, and Spanish Flu all rolled into one. And he goes on to say, but I actually am saying something far more profound than merely avoiding credit card debt because of the financial burden servicing it puts on you in your early earning years. I'm speaking about habit formation as well. There is a mentality and character that one who avoids credit card debt has, which stays with them into the future decades. And inversely, there is a mentality and character habit that one who defaults to spending borrowed money will likely keep as well. It doesn't go away easily. The greatest thing you can do is never develop those habits to begin with. And as he goes on to say further, when the bill comes, pay it. Because the first time you realize that you can carry the balance to the next month, and the next month, and that you can push your level of disposable spending above your actual level of disposable income, it'll not be your last. Well, let me share to my young self this example. If you had $10,000 in credit card debt and were being charged 17% interest for that debt, if you just made the minimum payment, it's around $142 a month. Well, you'd make that first payment of $142. And now your balance is $9,858 on that original $10,000. You think you're making progress, but then they apply that 17% interest and now your balance is back up to $9,999. So that's right. You paid $142, but your balance is only down by a single dollar, all because of interest. After two months, you pay another $142. So in total, $284 paid, and your balance is now $9,998 after the interest is applied. After 20 years, you will have paid $34,000 if you just made the minimum payment, and your balance would still be around $9,000. It would take you 36 years of making just the minimum payment after paying $61,000 to pay off that $10,000 debt to finally have a balance of $0. Again, this was another mistake I learned the hard way. I borrowed money on a credit card because actually I really had no other options and I missed a few credit card and student loan payments because of it. Later, someone ran my credit, and let's just say I wasn't approved to buy anything. But in my mid to late 20s, when I learned the power of money, I mended my ways and found financial religion and paid off all my debts early and maxed out my savings, and I'm in a great position now because of it. But if I could have learned that sooner, it would be even 
greater. One of the last things I would tell my young self is the single most important factor for building wealth is this. And I'll ask it in the form of a question. Is it A, money? Well, you have to have money to make money, right? Seems reasonable. Is it B, education? You know, people with a college degree earn $25,000 a year more than those with a high school diploma. $25,000 a year over a 40-year working career, that's a million dollars. Or is it C, time? Well, we know how critical time is in the compound interest formula. Is that the most important factor for building wealth? Or is it D, hard work? Or is it E, all of the above? So I'll review. Is it A, money? Is it B, education? Is it C, time? Is it D, hard work? Or is it E, all of the above? Now, almost everyone that I share this with always goes with E, all of the above. And I'm sorry to say, but it's a trick question because the correct answer is none of the above. Because the correct answer is discipline. Because if you don't have discipline, all the others don't matter. I know too many people, family members included, that earned plenty of money, had advanced degrees, worked for many, many decades, and they worked incredibly hard. They completed all of these things, but have nothing in the way of wealth because they never saved the extra money to invest, to have their money go to work for them. They were always going to work for money. As I like to say, good things don't happen to good people. Instead, good things happen to people who do good planning. The last thing I would have shared with my young self are these statistics about millionaires. These come from Chris Hogan's book entitled Everyday Millionaires. Now, the percent of millionaires that inherit their wealth is just 3%. Most guess around 20 to 40%. Only 5% of millionaires became so in less than five years. The average age was 49 when a person became a millionaire. The lesson here is it takes time. Now, 96 percent of millionaires enjoyed what they did for a career, and 64% said they loved their jobs. Clearly, you work harder when you love what you do. 80% of millionaires exercise three or more times a week. I love that stat. And 70% of millionaires are considered early risers. And here's one stat I really love. Eight out of 10 American millionaires come from families at or below the middle class income level. So there is hope there. Now, 92% of millionaires developed a long-term plan for their money. And 70% of millionaires saved more than 10% of their income throughout their working years. Now, it's really important you go to college, but it doesn't matter really where you go to college. 79% of millionaires did not attend prestigious private schools. 62% graduated from public schools. 8% attended community college. And 9% never graduated college at all. But it's important that you do go to college because 88% of millionaires graduated with a bachelor's degree compared to only 33% of the general population. And finally, it's not what you earn, but what you save. 64% of millionaires earned an average of $100,000 or less their entire career. And only 7% averaged over $200,000 their entire career. So clearly, building wealth is all about discipline and saving that little bit that will compound and grow in the future. 
As I shared at the beginning, when I was growing up, I didn't know much about money or investing or compound interest or the stock market. That's going to change for my own kids. I'm teaching them these principles now. And unfortunately for me, college didn't provide this information either. But sadly, this remains the case for many individuals. And there's so many young adults that don't know anything about money. And consequently, they have more problems with their relationships and have trouble realizing their potential and never harness the most powerful force in the universe of compound interest. Now, this is a podcast that focuses on early retirement, and few things can help you better prepare for an early retirement than knowing what you could need to do even earlier. Well, finally, I'll conclude with a quote from Sir Francis Bacon. Truthfully, I have no idea who he is, but he has a great quote on personal finance. Money is a good servant, but a bad master. And I hope that this episode will help you listeners be better at mastering money so you can have a better life. Well, thank you again for listening. I do hope you found this helpful. Now on to the tips, tricks, and strides portion of the podcast. Welcome to today's tips, tricks, and strides portion of the podcast, where I'll share a few tips on budgeting. Budgeting is key to succeeding with money, but too many make it harder and more tedious than it has to be. My first tip is to keep it simple by maxing out your retirement and other savings and then spend the rest. Some call this the automatic millionaire approach. This made one of the biggest differences for me. I would max out my 401k and contribute the maximum to my and my wife's Roth IRAs. I didn't have to worry about budget categories, etc., since we didn't go in debt for our regular spending. My next tip is that sometimes the easiest way to control your spending is to set bigger goals. It's way easier to limit what you spend at restaurants and on Amazon when you are saving for a trip to Tahiti or Thailand or for a newer car or a down payment for a home. For me, it has been way easier to skip the restaurant and eat at home when I know that by doing so, my family and I can try new cuisines in another part of the world because of it. My final tip is that it's really important that you monitor your spending. A great and free way to do that is via mint.com. This is a free program offered by Intuit, who also makes Quicken and TurboTax software. I use the Mint app to keep tabs on my spending. You just might be surprised what you find. That gym membership that you forgot about or some other service that you are paying for and no longer using. Average American spends $273 per month on subscription services. I've reviewed spending for an older couple and reduced their cable bill by over $125 a month by eliminating services they'd never used for years. They were paying for a premium movie channel they didn't even know they had and for two digital video recorders that they had and never used. This is why it's important to monitor your spending so more of your money goes towards the things that provide a truly meaningful life. Well, again, I hope you found this helpful. And remember, a better life is a result of better planning. Have a great one. Thank you for listening. And until next time, remember that no one builds wealth by accident. If you want to learn more about how to build wealth to retire early, head on over to my website at betterplanningbetterlife.com. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. 
The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted, and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal professional. Johnny West is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC.